0: In John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had, had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, where it had been given... From his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well, in about the sixth hour of the day. This is noon. About the sixth hour of the day, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink," for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink?" a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is who is saying this to you, give me a drink, then you would have asked him that he would give you living water. The woman said to him, sir, how can you give this living water? You have none and you have no pot to draw it. You are saying that you are greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it, as did the sons of his livestock and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will surely thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I have to give will never be thirsty again. But the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not thirst again, or to have to come to this well anymore. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you rightly say you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not even your husband. And that you have said, what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship Will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming that is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father is seeking those to worship him. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, what are you talking to her about? So the woman left her water jars and went into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town, and when they were coming to him, and meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him some food to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who has sent me to accomplish his work. Do not say that there is yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest now. Already the one who reaps is receiving the wages and gathering fruit of eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here is a saying that holds true. One sows, another reaps. I sent to you to reap that which you did not labor for. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And he told He told me all that I ever did, is what she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that indeed he is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You You may now be seated and relax. (laughs) God felt long because it is long. It is the longest conversation that Jesus had. So we're going to circle back to our first point here. What is a Samaritan? We're going to discuss what a Samaritan is, specifically why they're important to the story, specifically why they're in Scripture here in the New Testament. Why did Jesus need to go to her? Why did Jesus go directly to her when he could have taken any other path to get to his destination? So, a little backstory on them. In 721 BC, this is long before Christ, the northern kingdoms of Israel fell to the Assyrians when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was conquering most of all of the Middle East. He used a tactic which was designed to take the captives and dis plant them into a new location he would take those who he already conquered and move them into this new place that he conquered to commingle them the purpose of this was that no one would be loyal and start a revolt or an uprising against king nebuchadnezzar If you lived with the neighbor who you just met for the first time, they're from a new place, a new religion, they have nothing to do with your ancestors, they have no knowledge of your faith and your traditions, it is a lot harder to gain their strength and labor to go against the king. So he has this tactic where he's conquering a place, displacing people, putting them over there. Taking those who he already conquered, taking some of them, moving them into a new place so that they can all mingle together. This is exactly what he did. So many of the Samaritans in the town, sorry, uh, many of those Samaritans that were from this area, they're not yet Samaritans. The Jews that were conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar remained there. Those that remained and others left. Those that remained were commingled with pagans. And I say pagans just because they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. They had nothing to do with the Jews. So they did have other uh, traditions. They had other religions. So therefore, they are pagan, according to the Jews and the Jewish law. They started to intermarry and have children. And when you intermarry, you take on and assimilate what your spouse has to offer. So there's a blending of Judaism and paganism. Those people became known as the Samaritans. They are a blended group of Israelites. Still Israelite, still Jew, and then blended. So they're part this and part that. Those are known as Samaritans. They were half Jewish, half Gentiles. These are the people known as Samaritans. Samaritans were first mentioned in the Bible back in Ezra and during the time of Nehemiah. At this point, Babylon had given way to the Persian Empire. So King Nebuchadnezzar's out, but all the people still remained in their their half thought, their half divide, their they're divided at this point in their original intent of religion. So the Samaritans first gave problem to the Jews who returned after the Babylonian conquer, and now the king of Persia is there, and they return back. You guys remember the story of Nehemiah who had the ear of the Persian king and he had favor with him. He asked, can I go back to my people? Jerusalem has been destroyed by the uh, Nebuchadnezzar and and all of the Babylonians. So he desired to go back and to rebuild it. This is where we get the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah rebuilds the wall. The people that opposed them In the rebuilding of this wall were the Samaritans. They were part Jew themselves, but they opposed those who came back because they weren't the original Jew. They left, but they were a little bit more untainted than the Samaritans because the Samaritans intermingled. Those that left were in new places. They did their own intermingling and their own assimilations, but they also stayed true to their original faith as Jews. So, you have Jews and Samaritans now, right? Although Samaritans are part Jew, same religion, same forefathers. They still had stories about Jacob, Isaac, and Esau, and uh, Abraham. They, they went down the list. They had all these men as their patriarchs in their religion, and they're the same people, but they fought vehemently. So, those that opposed Nehemiah, that came at them with swords, were Samaritans, they were their brothers. We see that as they were rebuilding, the Samaritans came against them, and Nehemiah had this problem. Do we defend ourselves against our brothers? Well, certainly we do, because now there's a hatred that's starting to form. You are stopping us from rebuilding that which God has put us here to do. You are not for us. You are against us. You are now our enemy, even though you are just like us in many, many ways. Not entirely. The Samaritans also believed that they were the direct descent from two tribes, the tribes of Levi and the tribe of Joseph. Incidentally, they chose the two most notable ones. Joseph, most highly favored of his father, is given this beautiful coat, rises up to second in command in Egypt. Levi, all the priesthood comes through Levi. Levi was the only ones known to be the priests of Israel. So, I mean, if you're going to choose for yourself a tribe that you're going to be attached to, you're going to attach yourself to the coolest of the tribes, right? I mean, who's heard of Simeon? And who's heard of Naphtali and Reuben? I mean, you've heard of them, but what did they do? Oh, well, no, these two, We everybody knows these guys. We're, we're going to be from these guys. We're going to be descendants from these guys. So, why were they hated? Second point. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. This has been a long feud because it's centered around the differences of who was the original Jew. They had differences, but there was a lot of similarities between them. Those that were carried off, those that stayed true to the teachings and their ancestors, and those that stayed behind from the original country— it felt like they were the original Jews because they stayed in the promised land that God brought them to. So of course they're going to be the original Jews, right? They were Jews and we stayed in the promised land that God gave us. So why would we think of ourselves as anything else? But those who left and came back, well, those, those aren't true. Those guys are not dedicated and devoted to the cause. They left, forgetting they were actually forced out by the king. But nonetheless... They did not like each other to the point of bloodbath. The Samaritans, being mixed, the Israelites and and Gentiles, those that stayed in the land, they followed the first five books of the Pentateuch. They do not accept the teachings of the prophets or any of the traditions in the Mishnah. They strictly go with five first books, nothing more. Anything more would be a watering down of the law, and that would be an abomination. The Jews have teachings from the prophets. Isaiah, Elijah, these guys, Micah. These guys are all a part of their heritage, but the Samaritans did not accept that as being godly material. Incidentally, the one who you're going to fight against the most in this world, in this life, you, all of us, the ones that you're probably going to end up fighting most harshly against are those who call themselves Christian, but don't teach Christianity. And we see that happening right here. Those that call themselves of God, people of God, not teaching what the other thought they should have been teaching. To the Jews, the Samaritans were a mixed breed. They were mutt. They were actually looked at as dogs. They were pagan. And the Jews saw them as fully corrupt because they intermarried and mingled with the pagans that came into their area. They established their center of worship on Mount Gerizim, which is not Jerusalem, where the Jews have their temple mount. They claimed that it is where Moses had originally intended the Israelites to worship. They had their own unique version of the five books. Their law is very similar, but there's a lot more emphasis on covenants. There's a few things in there that are slightly different, but by and large, their five books from Moses are pretty close. They have nine commandments, not ten. Jews have ten. Samaritans have nine. So you can see how close these people are to one another. They're very, very close in religion, very close skin tone, very close history. They are brothers and sisters. Slightly different. So when they established this place in which they were to worship on Mount Gerizim, this becomes evident in the story where she says, the Jews say they worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mount. Jesus has to put her in check. When the Jews returned to build the wall, they were opposed by the Samaritans. This led to further ill will between the two groups, and established in the land of opposition to one another. At this point, it's accurate to say that they are all Jews in some fashion, right? They're the original people. Their granddads, their great granddads came through Egypt. They came through the parting of the sea. They have the same history. They were undifferent, unchanged, inconfusably, unchangeably inseparably, up to the point in which Nebuchadnezzar separated them. They are the same people group, and yet they fought so vehemently against each other. And they fought because they didn't like the way the other person did it. They both bowed their knee to Yahweh God, but the other didn't like the way how they bow their knee, or what they say when they bow their knee. So, I think maybe we can start seeing this picture being formed even within our own lives, how we treat people who call themselves Christians that do things differently. Today in the world, there is only about 800 Samaritans left. They all live in one city at the top of Mount Gerizim. They live in a very tight community. They are owned by Palestine, on one end of it, of the city, and on the other side, they are owned by Israel. So they are actually have dual citizenship. So they are Palestinian and they are Israeli. It's very difficult for them because even where they live, their own country, unsplit, their own country are at war with each other, Palestine and Israel. So it's very difficult for this people group. And like I said, there's only about 800 left as of 2023 they are having extreme problems trying to populate and repopulate. There's been a lot of medical malfunctions in their children because they're all related at this point. They're all just cousins. So the heads, the great grand of the Samaritan faith, the high priests, there are three of them, they have now made allowance for these men to go and gain brides from other parts of the world. So there's just further intermarrying now and further, but they do have to convert and become Samaritans. So to say this uh, no good Samaritan, which is the title of my my sermon, uh, it's irony. Of course, there are good Samaritans. The parable about the good Samaritan can also be looked at when you change the emphasis and we say the good Samaritan, The Jews would have looked at it at that point and go, a good Samaritan? There's maybe one. There's a good Samaritan. The one and only good Samaritan. Because they're all a bunch of dogs. We trust them. We hate them. We want nothing to do with them. But the, the reason why Jesus brought this up is very poignant. And we'll talk about that here shortly. So the Jews at no point ever thought that there was a good one. Remembering the audience in which Jesus delivered this parable to, they were Jews and they couldn't believe that the Samaritans could even be good. So that's why Jesus had to show them that the laws that the Pharisees were following were actually preventing them from fulfilling the display of the mercy of God. And here we see that Jesus used the Samaritans to be the good one in the story to show that they're not dogs. They may be thought of as dogs, but they're not. So Jesus uses this parable to convict the Pharisees and those that are following the teachings of the Pharisees to admit that their laws have made them so high and mighty that they can't even look at a dying person on the side of the road because they're different. This person who was dying wasn't the Samaritan. The person who was dying and battered and bruised, that person, they couldn't even approach because they were bleeding. And in the law no Jew can go towards blood and touch blood it was unholy it was it was unclean so because of their law they couldn't help this person the samaritan said none of that none of that matters they had the same laws none of that matters i'm going to help this person they're dying so jesus used this good samaritan as a picture of how these people should have been they should not have been so tied up in their laws and made them so lofty that they misunderstood And they were more concerned with the method than they were concerned with the heart behind helping. When Jesus speaks this to her, the woman at the well, she is very confused as to why he's even speaking to her. She's even more confused why he's asking her for a drink. That too would be unholy. It is an abomination for a Jew to ask a Samaritan for anything, specifically a woman. So if, ever, if there was a Samaritan who was a Jew, a Samaritan woman is like a dead dog on the side of the road. She's even less than a Samaritan. She's a woman. And she's a Samaritan. So the fact that Jesus is asking her, she doesn't know who he is at this point, but he's asking her for a drink. This is very confusing to her. He should not be asking. This is unclean, according to the Jews. So our third point here, what do we do with these good for nothing, no good Samaritans? Now that we've established the relationship between these two people groups, why is it in the text here? We see in verses seven and nine that Jesus asked her for water and as she's taken back by his request. She said, what do you have to do with me? She acknowledges that the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. So he replies, if you even knew who was asking you for this drink, you would ask me for living water. This confuses her even more. She says, what are you talking about? You didn't even have water. You didn't come here to draw anything out. You have no pot to take water, and you're talking about living water, and you're asking me for water. I'm very confused. So she's set before him with this conversation going on, and at this point, she's still very confused by the entirety of the situation. The things he's asked her and the fact that he asked her, the fact that he's even there. He was going to, uh, to Galilee from Jerusalem. There are many other roads to go through. It was unclean and an abomination for the Jews to go through Sikar because that's where the Samaritans were. The fact that Jesus specifically walked that path to go to her was already a conundrum. When she asks the question about, you don't have a pot, are you trying to say that you are greater than our father Jacob? She's trying to redirect him. She's trying to get away from the fact that he's asking her, the fact that he's talking with her. She's getting to the meat of the matter. Are you you better than our father Jacob? Now, there's no Jew on the face of the earth that would ever admit yes, even though he was, but she didn't know this at this point. There's no Jew that would ever say, I'm greater than Jacob. (laughs) That would be horrible. We can't really understand that, being Americans. But for a Jew to say, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm greater, would be astronomically insane. No one would ever admit this. So, she says, are you greater? This question that she asks in the Greek expects a negative answer. She's expecting him to go, absolutely, no way. No, 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 no. I'm not saying I'm greater than Jacob. No, that can't be. I'm a Jew and he's our father. There's no way I could be greater. The scholars all agree here that she's trying to derail him from the spiritual conversation that she's starting to pick up on. This is just fodder for discussion that is less convicting to her. When you evangelize people, people will often throw something out to pull you away from a convicting portion of your conversation. You are not effectively evangelizing unless you are convicting. If you are convicting them, you are evangelizing them. If you're just having conversation with them, you're still planting good seeds. But that isn't called evangelism. Evangelism is the purpose of conversion, So Jesus knows this here and this is why he's trying to bring about conviction to her. He knows the root of the matter. He knows who she is. The gospel is convicting in nature. Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. He says, go and get your husband and bring him here. He gets right to her sin because he already knows her past. When he breaks it down for her, She then perceives that he's a prophet. After he says, no, 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 I know you don't have a husband. You've actually had five, and the guy you're living with right now in fornication isn't even your husband. You're spending time with him like you're married. I know about you. I know who you are. She then perceives that he's a prophet. She still doesn't want to deal with her sin. So she tries to redirect him again into an ancient argument between the two groups. She's trying to get away from personal conviction, and she starts talking about the mountain. She's like, ah, this is too much. You just told me that I'm in sin. Now, theologians also agree that these five men that were her husband's prior weren't dead. They did not pass away, breaking her from the covenant. This is a loose woman. This is a woman with lots of sin in her life. She is promiscuous. Jesus, again, does not let her uh, does not fall for it. He gets right to the heart of the matter by saying that the mountains that you worship on don't matter. It's not the important thing. The important thing is the inclination of your heart towards God. He's the Father, and he's looking for individuals to worship him in spirit and in truth. So... Let's talk about this woman for a brief moment. She went there at, the Bible says, at the sixth hour, which happens to be noon. That's how we would translate. She's at noon. It's the hottest time of the day. There are no crowds there because it's already hot. For those who do uh, chores around their, their homestead or their farm or anything outside, you understand you get your chores done first thing in the morning when it's the cool of the day. Or you get them done in the evening, you try to avoid the heat of the day as much as possible. Specifically, if you're, this is your job, I mean, we're not just like, go take the dog for a walk. We're talking about like, this is, this is how you make a living. You try to avoid the heat of the day. It's very dangerous and uncomfortable. So they also try to avoid the heat of the day. The fact that she's there tells us something. She's there at the hottest point. She couldn't show her face at the well when the other women were there because she was a social outcast due to her sexual sin. Christ knew her backstory and her strongest inner desires. She desired to be valued and wanted, and she went from man to man looking for what she couldn't find in her life. No woman would travel by herself. They would go with their friends. They would go with a relative. They wouldn't travel by themselves It's dangerous. That part of the world had many bandits, uh, and they were not afraid to kill you. They did not have laws like we do, and they didn't care about them. There was no humanitarianism in their minds. They would cut you up for a piece of bread in your pocket. So you don't go by yourself, specifically a woman. Don't go anywhere by yourself. We do this even today. You send your daughters out to go somewhere. Hey, take your brother with you. You're not going along, you know, if you got a brother old enough to do something about it. (laughs) So she's there by herself. There are no other women with her. Her friends, she didn't have any. They weren't coming with her. This is all speculation, but we're reading into the white spaces here. And many agree, this is the accurate way of understanding who she is. She was longing for something. The reason why she has had six men in her history She's longing for value, to be valued, to be spoken of highly. Unfortunately, she is not valued. A woman who follows in these footsteps are not a prized possession. We see it in our societies. We have labels for these kinds of women. But nonetheless, she's still a child of God who wants to have value. From the statement that she sees him now as Christ, because he was able to say to her, the one, you knew that there's a Christ coming, the one who's going to tell you all that you ever did. This does not connect for you yet. I just did that. But let me make this even more simple for you. I am he who you are speaking about. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. She drops her pot immediately because she recognized him as Christ. She drops her pot and runs away and runs back to the town. The woman left everything that she had. She ran into town to tell the men. Now, I'm not a theologian. So in research here, I'm going on the information that's given and I'm fact checking to see if this is accurate. I'm fact checking to make sure I'm not just believing some TikTok narrative real. And I'm actually picking up something that's real. Most theologians agree that she went to tell her husband because the Bible says she went to tell the men that she went to tell her ex-husbands due to the familiarity that she would have had with them. Now, this is speculatory. We can't entirely pick this up. I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not able to break down the Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew the way theologians can. So I can't give you that with certainty. But they mostly agree that she went to tell those who she was most familiar with. And in doing so, these men left what they were doing to come and see this person that she just testified about. Many of the Samaritans believed that Jesus as the Christ because of the woman's testimony. After they spoke to Christ themselves, they asked him, invited him to stay there for two days, and then even many more believed on Jesus in the Samaritan city because of the words that Jesus spoke. So the fourth and final point is that is truly the no-good Samaritan good for anything, something? Because of the testimony of one publicly known sinner, many from the town came and were able to confess with their own mouths that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus is the Savior of the world because of her testimony. Sometimes we meet people that that look like us, they sound like us. But then we discredit them as lesser Christians because they're Christians that are sinning. Because their sin is greater than our sin. It's uglier than our sin. We get it from the world. We know they're sinners. We understand the pagans and the, the infidels and... Anyone else that doesn't bow their knee to Christ. But if you bow your knee to Christ, boy, you better toe the line. And if you don't, I'm not going to look at you the same way. Forget about the fact that I don't, but you better. So we look at others within our own camp who do things differently. Sometimes we look at them as Samaritans. They're brothers with the same heritage. They bow the knee to the same God. But they do things differently, and therefore they are dogs in our sight. And we may have even had conversation with people that when we leave the conversation, they're like, I don't even know if that person's even, if God has anything to do with that person. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who claims Christianity who is in obvious rebellion against Scripture. I'm not talking about the transgender, fluffy, furry thing that says I'm Christian. And so therefore we go, oh, well, okay, you are. Then let's just, you know, kumbaya, and let's just go have a meal together. That's not what I'm saying. There are many people who bow their knee to Christ that are genuine brothers and sisters that want to do the right thing, but they're caught in sin, and we are too focused on the sin and not the one who came to eat their sin. So we meet these people. We understand it from the world. But yet we still look at them as a special kind of bad because they call themselves Christians. They go to church every Sunday. They have a theology. They have a history of loving God. They even say that Jesus is their savior. But because they sin harder, we look at them as reprobate. Jesus saw through her sin and made it a point to go to her on this road. As I said before, he could have gone any other path to get to Galilee but he went directly to her where he wasn't supposed to go. Jesus was in the habit of breaking the social norms. Mm -hmm. He did the things you weren't supposed to do when it came to the stupid laws. He never went against the laws of God, but when it came against the laws and traditions that men established that were against the laws of God, they are against a people group that they should have had love for and compassion for. If you're a Jew you know you have it all with God. You are the man. Why would you not want to give that to everyone else that you come in contact with? If you had the cure to a disease and someone had that disease, why would you withhold it from them? Because they're different. So if anybody should have been compassionate, it should have been the people of God that was then and that is now. God often goes to the worst of the worst. He proclaimed his son's arrival to the shepherds, which were basically just the dust of the earth. And then he chose this Samaritan woman to divulge for the first person to actually hear from the mouth of Christ that he is the Messiah. He chose a Samaritan woman to declare that to. Jesus was always going against the social norms. He would be what we would call a Karen. He would stand up for something he believed in, and whether we liked it or not, we would look at him differently because he wasn't doing what we should be doing. So we have to be careful to identify, is it really what we should be doing? Or is it something that we have just grown accustomed to because we have been incubated within the safety and space of Christianity? Determine what you believe, follow through. Elder Ratliff preached the sermon a few weeks back that your integrity is what you carry out in your life what you believe your theology is how you live so let your theology be good please all of us including me so now our application what does this mean what do we do with this don't be afraid to open your mouth and proclaim the goodness of god don't assume that the christian that is sin in sin is a worthless dog undeserving of the refreshing power of the gospel we should be made new every morning with the mercies of God and that some of our brothers and sisters have gone for many days without refreshing and renewing They and you may have been wronged they may have wronged you along the way but that doesn't change our responsibility they really may be good for nothing other than an example of what not to do. But if Jesus went to a Samaritan woman who was a loose woman who is still currently in a fornicative relationship currently, if he went to her to offer her salvation, knowing her backstory, knowing who she is, knowing the people group she's a part of, why can't we? Why can't we pray for mercy for those who are different than us? Today, open your hearts, forgive, even the worst of the worst, because that forgiveness is for you, if not for them as well. Pray that you may be used of God to bring about salvation to them, and then pray that they would be used of God to bring about salvation to others in their lives. Our responsibility is not to judge, but to forgive and to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and to emulate his example in our own lives. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for communing with us this morning. Thank you for speaking with us, Lord, all throughout the liturgy. The sermon is just a part of the entire, the entirety of the liturgy, Lord, is, is the whole of the sermon. It is the point, Lord, to teach us, to help us understand that we are sinners. We are born in sin. We continue to sin. Lord, we don't do the things that we should do, and we don't do the things that we want to do because we fight against our own flesh. Lord, help us to have eyes to see your holiness. It is your holiness that drives us to the throne, that drives us to the center, that allows us and gives us the power to open our mouths about your goodness. It's not anything we do. It's not how clean we are. It's not all of the things that we're involved in that are the cookie cutter of the perfect Christian life. It is your mercy in our lives that has forgiven us and even allowed us to enjoy the goodness of our lives. Lord, please use us to convey that goodness to others who need it. There are so many that are hurting and that are lost that need to see the light and to feel the touch of the Savior's hand. Father, I pray for your blessing upon us to, as your, your feet, Lord, as we bring the gospel out into this world, Lord. Bless us with the ability to do so. We don't need degrees. We just need a heart for you and a heart for people who don't have you. Lord, teach us your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.